The Cannabis Business Coach. Hi, Mike Z here, author of the Cannabis Business Book. And you're listening to the Cannabis Business Coach Podcast, where I chat with and coach the highest performing entrepreneurs in the cannabis industry. Hi, Mike Z is. Hi, Mike Z is. Hi, Mike Z is. The Cannabis Business Coach. Hi, Mike Z here, and today I'm joined by a dear friend and mentor of mine, Mr. Neil Kaufman, the founding partner of Kaufman and Associates, and even before that, someone who's had an illustrious business career. I mean, Neil, your resume is pretty outstanding, and so I'm honored to have you here today. I'm excited to to be able to chat with you and share some of your wisdom and insights. And um, if you wouldn't mind, can you go ahead and just tell the folks listening or watching a little about your background and how you found your way into the cannabis industry and, and the type of work you're doing now? Sure. Well, thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me. I'm very much looking forward uh, to today. Um, so I, um, I've been a practicing corporate and securities lawyer for over 35 years. Uh, and that's really how I found my way into the cannabis industry. Uh, 1984 graduate of New York University School of Law. Uh, worked at a big Wall Street law firm for a number of years. Um, I was the chairman of the corporate department of a couple of large regional firms. And about four years or so ago, um, when faced with the choice of giving up my cannabis practice, uh, or uh, leaving my firm and doing something else, I decided to start my own firm. I had my own firm uh, during the tech boom of the late 90s, so I essentially restarted it. Um, and so uh, my firm, Kaufman Associates, has been uh, relaunched for uh, over four years now. Um, and we are Corporate and Securities Council to the state legal cannabis industry. What does that mean? Well, we've participated in over $800 million of cannabis industry transactions. We work with cannabis companies on everything from starting uh, their business, forming their entities, structuring their corporate groups. In many cases in this industry, it also involves restructuring and reorganizing their corporate groups because cannabis uh, being a capital intensive industry uh, tends to um, be financed in silos. And then when it comes time to um, make these companies marketable or investable, they need to be combined. And so we, we do a, a tremendous amount of work with major cannabis companies, putting, taking them through these restructurings and financings and acquisitions and their commercial contracts and all you know executive compensation, uh, equity compensation for employees and you know, all the things that growing companies need. Now, we do that based on all of our experience prior to the explosion in the legal cannabis industry in the last several years um, in the regular non-cannabis world where you know we've and i've participated in private placements and ipos and other public offerings and sec filings and mergers and acquisitions and all types of commercial contracts and and satisfying the needs of growing businesses for the last 35 years um, in addition to running my law firm, just so you have a sense of my background, uh, I am also on the board of trustees and the chairman of the audit committee of two mutual funds. So when we talk about the lack of institutional investors in the cannabis industry because of federal 
illegality. I have an insight on that because of my hands-on experience for the last six or seven years now uh, on the board of, of mutual funds and as chairman of the audit committee. That's been a, a, a very uh, fun part of my life uh, and uh, has actually intersected with my cannabis practice, interestingly enough, uh, over the last couple of years. And then in addition to those things, uh, my, I guess, uh, fourth and fifth jobs are as the chairman of the board of two uh, not-for-profits. I'm the chairman emeritus of the Long Island Capital Alliance. I was the chairman of the board for eight years, and I've stepped up to the emeritus role. Uh, that's a nonprofit organization that helps local uh, companies raise growth capital. We've helped dozens of local companies raise hundreds of millions of dollars of growth capital and added thousands of jobs in our community over the last 30 years. And I'm also the chairman of the board of the Long Island Chapter of Financial Executives International, a nationwide organization of CFOs, controllers, and other financial executives. So with that as my background, you know, I wish I could tell you that my involvement in the cannabis industry was the result of some bold strategic genius. Um, but, but it's not, as so much in life, it's somewhat serendipitous. Um, while I've always been a fan of cannabis um, and loved the plant and always was a strong advocate for legal reform of, of the cannabis laws in this country, um, you know, I didn't really get actively involved in the industry till about five or six years or so ago. I was engaged by... Uh, a group that was applying for a license in New York when New York had its first round of medical marijuana licenses. Um, and I worked with them in connection with cleaning them up, getting them restructured and multiple rounds of raising multiple rounds of private financing to finance their bid. And then in the course of doing that, that group secured the exclusive uh, rights from Takun Alam Limited in Israel, which is, you know, the original medical marijuana uh, company, the first, as far as we could tell, the first company in the world that was ever licensed by a government um, to have a medical marijuana business. So having secured those intellectual property rights, that group and an affiliate of, 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 of the group that applied for the New York license also um, designed and began operating a nationwide a cannabis business and a worldwide cannabis-derived pharmaceutical business. So I structured that group for them and have worked with them uh, for the last five or six years, like I said. That's how I got involved originally. And then, you know, once you, in my world, work with a company that's raising capital and need to prepare their offering documents, you're forced to learn the industry. And so I did that. I, 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 so I, I, that enabled me to learn the cannabis industry and do a few deals, meet a few people, and then I went to a few conferences. And the next thing you know, a couple of years later, with the explosive growth in the cannabis industry, while I didn't fire all my old clients, um, the work that we were doing for cannabis companies had come to be, be a preponderance of what we did. And having been involved now for so long with hands-on experience in the industry, um, we're one of a relatively small number of law firms that have direct hands-on cannabis experience, but also know how to practice corporate and securities laws at the highest level. And so when a lot of our clients come to us, we're able to provide the interdisciplinary uh, advice that they need to take their business to, to the next level 
and it's been very successful for all of us. Thank you for that intro, Neil. Your background in, in business and in cannabis business is you know, at the highest level. And I think one thing you didn't mention, which I, I find super impressive, is you're also the chairman of the, of the board of a NASDAQ-listed tech company. And so, you know. I was, I was 20 years ago uh, at the tail end of the tech boom. I was the chairman of a NASDAQ-listed tech company, which was a very interesting experience. Um, you know, I feel for all these CEOs of public companies dealing with uh, uh, analysts and other Wall Street participants. Um, I must say, even as a securities lawyer, I found that to be a real challenge to keep track of what you can and can't say uh, to the street. It's... Um, you know, it takes uh, a significant amount of mental energy and discipline to do. And so I have, I have tremendous respect for uh, all of those who, who deal with that on a daily basis. And that's, you know, part of some of the advice that I provide to, to my clients is, you know, how do you get ready to go public or sell to a public company? And, you know, the corporate governance that you need to put in place to make yourself an investable company or a potentially public company. Um, you know, for a long time, a lot of that was missing in the cannabis industry. And over the last, you know, especially year or two, I would say the trend towards the professionalization of the industry has accelerated. And so I, I get, I think, more and more uh, industry participants that are very serious about corporate governance and doing things right and getting things set up the right way, um, which I, I think uh, is just emblematic of the industry moving on to its, its next level of development, uh, which it needed to do and which it is, has done and is doing. And I think we're seeing that in the, the increased number of highly professionally managed, well-run companies that are now making a profit, a significant profit um, in this industry. You know, five years ago, it was pretty rare to see a profitable company. Um, and it was very common to see um, many people that had, shall we say, a different type of view of business. Um, and, you know, while we still have those people involved in the industry and there's a role for traditional industry participants, more and more professional management teams and professional investors and, you know, very serious um, uh, participants have entered the industry and, and have made significant contributions to the further growth professionalization uh, of the industry. Yeah, it reminds me of a few years ago when I would talk to people who are in the industry operating and they didn't even want to hire lawyers and accountants. Like they didn't view that as a necessary piece of the puzzle. And I, I was fairly new then and coming from a traditional business background and was like, what do you mean? How can you... How can you not hire lawyers and accountants, especially in this especially industry? In a heavily regulated industry where, where, where that's really more important than ever. And, you know, some of the accounting and, and obviously the tax issues like 280E and um, some of the accounting issues that arise from the nature of the industry, uh, you know, the, the, the common use of cash 
and uh, the, some of the historical vestiges. It's critically important. Um, yeah, I used to hear a lot from people, well, well, we don't need to do that because this is the cannabis industry and so it's different. And the reality is it's not so different anymore. Um, maybe five years ago, you could get away with, um, you know, persuading an investor that uh, you didn't really need to have your paperwork tied down. You didn't really need to go through a more traditional due diligence process, but that has changed. And as, as the amounts of capital being raised have increased and we're now seeing, you know, fairly significant 20, 30, 50 million dollar deals and more. I mean, we just saw $250 million financing announced a few weeks ago uh, that I was involved with. Um, you know, these are serious investors and they understand that the due diligence for a cannabis company needs to be not scaled down because it's cannabis, but really scaled up because it's cannabis, because you have the extra layer of risk with federal illegality and all of the you know, serious regulatory compliance issues. And so if you want to build a successful cannabis company, you need to um, know how to run a cannabis business, but also realize that you're now going to be measured more like a any other regular business would be as well. Um, and uh, the days of ignoring that, I think, are over. Got it. So I'm hearing you say that more and more cannabis and traditional business are converging and looking similar. And I'm wondering if there's any differences that you still see or experience where you feel like cannabis is really unique and different from all the other industries or business environments you've worked in, or if that's not the case at all. Not too many other industries are just flat out illegal under federal law, where every dollar you touch is technically money laundering. Um, that's a unique aspect um, that, you know, interestingly, I think industry participants have just sort of gotten over. And uh, if you're willing to play in this sandbox, you have to accept that and accept that risk and move on and mitigate the risk as best you can. And thankfully, you know, regulatory um, enforcement of that federal illegality has been stymied by congressional statute and by administrative uh, uh, discretion for a long time. And that has not even changed significantly under the Trump administration. Uh, so we all just deal with that unique aspect. But, you know, one of the things I want to say, Mike, is um, in other ways, while people think this, the industry is so different, it's really not. And so I would say, you know, the, well, this is cannabis, it's special, the regular rules don't apply to me kind of mentality is not so different than you see in many, many parts of the tech industry where tech entrepreneurs uh, think they can get away with anything and do all kinds of really interesting, challenging things. Um, so when, when people say to me, well, this is cannabis, it's, it's different. You've never seen anything like this before, have you? A lot of times I'm tempted to say, well, no, I, I'm old enough to have lived through the tech boom of the 90s. So this is actually just like that in many, many ways. I'm curious to hear more about that, the comparisons between 
this and the tech bubble or boom. Um, and, you know, I like to say that the legalization of cannabis is like the birth of the internet. So I, I agree that it is kind of, yeah. And, and so, but I, I, I'm curious to hear from your perspective, some of the similarities. And also I'm curious, you mentioned a little while ago that when you first started working in the industry, you were forced to go and learn the industry. And so I'm curious to hear a little about how did you go about getting that cannabis education or cannabis industry education? Because I'm sure there's lots of folks listening that are just getting started on that path. And so I'm curious what you would recommend for them to, to go and learn the industry. You may or may not remember, you may not be old enough to remember that when the internet first started, it was the Wild West. And no one was really sure how intellectual property rights applied and what laws applied. And so there was, there were, there were, there was a lot of illegality in the early internet, uh, intentional or otherwise. Um, and, in a, and, and so it has that similarity with the cannabis industry in that there's inherent illegality and uh, for a long time, a bit of a wild west mentality uh, where you just didn't know what the rules were going to end up being. And of course, the other similarity is, you know, the internet of the 90s birthed an, an enormous technology industry boom, at, very similar to, uh, you know, what I think we're all seeing as, as the greatest growth industry of the, you know, this, uh, this portion of the 21st century, which is cannabis. I mean, cannabis has always been maybe a 300 or so billion dollar industry worldwide, but as more and more of it comes into the legal realm, it's producing, uh, uh, you know, the greatest growth industry of this era. And so the similarities, the parallels, I think are striking. And um, I think there's also some parallels in, in terms of the financing techniques that were used. You know, we saw a huge boom in the 90s in micro cap financing and uh, obviously IPOs. We haven't seen the same level of IPOs, but we've seen uh, you know, a lot of public market financing activity, especially in Canada, which bears a striking resemblance to the 90s uh, micro cap boom in uh, the US on a lot of levels, uh, for better or worse. And um, you know, so the, 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 the similarities are, um, you know, a little bit eerie to me. Uh, and uh, frankly, I think having lived through the 90s uh, in the New York capital markets ha has been, um, you know, very helpful to me in navigating the 20, you know, teens and 20s uh, boom in the cannabis industry. Now, in terms of learning the industry, to answer your second question, like I said earlier, uh, I had to write private placement memos for clients that were raising capital. So anytime I, as a securities lawyer, am engaged by a client uh, and, and I have to prepare their disclosure documents, I have to learn their industry well enough to be able to make disclosure of all material facts. So I'm forced to learn their industry. There are, there's a lot of commonality in business and a lot of commonality across industries. On one level, cannabis is an agricultural manufacturing and retail industry, like many other agricultural manufacturing and really distribution and retail industries. So 
I'm able to bring, to, I was able to bring to bear, you know, everything I knew about those kinds of businesses could translate to cannabis. Plus you have the additional cannabis specific aspects of it that I needed to learn. I needed to learn those legalities and, and, and a lot of the industry specific science and, and uh, background, um, you know, but once I go through that process of learning the industry, I learn it and then I, and then I've been able to keep current with it. To come in now and learn the industry, you know, I, I mean, following a similar pathway could work. You can immerse yourself in it. But I think it's a real, a real challenge. Um, like when I first got involved six years ago, um, you know, they just, the competition was a lot weaker. Um, you had a lot of self-styled cannabis lawyers, but not too many of them really were, were you know, knew, knew much about corporate law. You had some corporate lawyers who were involved, but very few, and they generally didn't know much about cannabis law. And to find the combination uh, was exceedingly rare. And I think that's where we were able to carve out our niche and why we've uh, you know, been able to uh, be reasonably active in the industry, why we represent three of the largest cannabis companies in California, as well as uh, you know, growing and thriving cannabis companies all around the country. Um, you know, to come in now, I think the playing field is, is a lot more challenging. You can still learn it. It's not rocket science, right? If you can read and assimilate information, you can still learn it. Um, it's just, uh, you know, it's at a different stage of development. I, I agree with you. And I think anyone coming into the industry really has to invest in getting that cannabis education, which it's all out there. You know, you can do, to your point, if you can read and assimilate information, it's, a, it's out there for you. And a great starting point is the Cannabis Business Book, which you can go on Amazon.com. And I've assimilated a bunch of wisdom from 50 industry insiders. That's a great beginner's guide or, or a guide for folks who are new to the industry to get to know some of the nuances and really start that cannabis education journey. Um, I'm curious, Neil... You mentioned staying current. I'm curious, what are some of the maybe news sources or outlets that you regularly frequent to, to stay up to date on what's going on in the industry? And I'll throw on a, a part two is, you know, what's a piece of news that's either excited you or concerned you as it relates to the cannabis business and and my beard doesn't count as a piece of concerning news. So. <laughs> well, look, look I, I think most of us in the industry, uh, you know, get um, marijuana business news daily uh, in our inbox. And so that's generally useful to just scan that, keep an eye on what's going on, what they're reporting. And then, you know, my inbox is inundated with a variety of news sources, whether it's New Frontier or um so many others that um i frankly get more information than i could possibly read and i just try to keep an eye on it if it looks interesting i read it uh if it looks relevant to what i'm doing i read it and so i really try to stay current on a day-to-day week-to-week month-to-month basis um building on you know my base understanding of the industry and just trying to keep it updated in terms of you know what has really like a piece of news that's really ex, you know sort of 
um, surprised or excited me. I would have to say, and it's not necessarily a piece of news, but um, the revelation that the cannabis industry um, is very strongly recession-proof in during this COVID-19 pandemic-driven depression has been um, a little bit surprising and encouraging. Um, while the capital markets remain um, weak from a financing standpoint, although marijuana stocks have bounced back in the last few months, you know, observing how some of my clients, especially the stronger ones, are doing very well right through this depression has been an enormous relief, um, a little bit of a surprise, and I think great news uh, for the industry. I mean, I have several clients that are doing better than ever right now from a financial standpoint, from an operational standpoint generating more revenue, making more money. That's phenomenal. In this kind of depression driven by a respiratory virus. I mean, that is shocking to me. I mean, marijuana being deemed an essential industry by almost all the states was a great start and clearly an essential component to that. Because if every dispensary had been shut down, I think we'd be, you know, we would have a, we would have a completely different story right now, obviously. But they weren't. And instead, they've thrived. And that's just, uh, I think, uh, a tremendously positive piece of information for this industry on a long-term basis. What do you think the impact of, of this new information might be? You know, how, how might this shape the future of the industry or or the capital markets as a, as they relate to cannabis for the next uh, year or two or three or beyond well i think i think it really i think it affirms what a lot of us have thought for a long time which is that in the long run the cannabis industry will probably resemble some cross between the alcohol and tobacco industries because you know it, it's a um, it's a medicinal and in some cases intoxicating substance that is derived from an agricultural product, so long as that is the prime remains the primary source of cannabinoid uh, chemicals, uh, unless that were to be overtaken by biosynthesis or some other technological development. For the time being, for for the foreseeable future, I think we're looking at um, you know, an agriculturally derived uh, sin, sin and medicinal industry. So it's really a combination of nutraceuticals, alcohol, tobacco. You know, those are three pretty interesting industries. And if you're a synthesis of those, I think you're a pretty good industry. So let me ask you, Neil, what do you think about the future of New York cannabis and and maybe the Northeast or the East Coast, where we're still, uh, I would say, uh, behind the West Coast in a lot of ways. And you know, there's the expectation of New Jersey, New York, and the tri-state coming online. Uh, I'm curious, you know, if you have a view on on what the future might look like in the tri-state area. 
Well, look, it's very difficult to predict right now. Uh, I think the COVID-19 pandemic has uh, significantly affected the development of the industry in the Northeast um, in ways that, you know, we had no way to predict uh, back last, you know, last winter and spring when we all expected New York and other, perhaps other states as well uh, to legalize recreational cannabis in the near term. So once COVID hit, um, that legalization in New York um, fell off the political agenda. We're still likely to see New Jersey vote at, in a ballot initiative this November to legalize cannabis, which I think we all expect will um, encourage New York and other neighboring states to do the same because why should New Jersey get to keep all the tax revenue? Every state is, is, is more desperate now than ever for tax revenues. Um, I think we all have a general expectation that that's going to drive cannabis legalization, recreational cannabis legalization. Um, one of the interesting, interesting things that, that you know, I've noted is that pre-COVID, uh, New York Governor Cuomo had uh, attempted to coordinate with other neighboring states with respect to cannabis regulation which would be enormously helpful if there was some degree of, of relative uniformity uh, in the regulatory structures uh, in the Northeast states. Now, those same states have been actively cooperating in, in dealing with the COVID pandemic. If that cooperation can now be continued and carried forward back into the cannabis industry, and we see you know, a segment of contiguous states in the Northeast that, that legalize recreational cannabis with, a, with, a, with compatible regulatory structures, I think the Northeast will be the next boom area for the industry, could very well drive uh, the next boom in cannabis investment and uh, you know, increasingly pave the way for federal legalization. That's my hope. I won't say that's a prediction because when it comes to predicting politics in this country and in the state of New York, uh, you know, you make those predictions at your own peril. Um, <laughs> but, you know, fingers crossed, let's hope so. Awesome. Well, thank you for that. Um, Neil, I want to ask you what um, you've had. No, that's right. I could edit that out. Um, <laughs> Neil, you've had a tremendous business experience that we've covered. You know, you've worked at the highest level of the cannabis industry. I'm curious, what about you, what has allowed you to succeed in, in business across the board, not just in cannabis, but um, what's your highest power? Uh, you know, that's a difficult question. I don't know, Mike. I mean, I, mean, I think it's, I think I just have an, a, a pretty good ability to solve problems. Um, uh, you know, I've been through behavioral profiling and other uh, sort of management um, tools uh, through those processes. And, you know, what those folks tell me is that I have a very unusual blend of um, strategic thinking and detail mastery. Um, most people, well, most people can't do either. Very few people can do both. Um, and, you know, that I think is um, what has enabled me to practice in my profession at a high level, as well as learn how uh, to best operate in boardrooms and in managing businesses at a high level. Um, you know, 
I don't have a lot of natural gifts. I can't throw a, a fastball 90 miles an hour. I can't run a 4-4-40. Um, but put me in a boardroom and I can help uh, figure out a solution to uh, the problems and a strategy uh, for the business that can lead to long-term success. So I think that's why I, you know, have been a successful corporate and securities lawyer, why I'm now, you know, a pretty good uh, corporate cannabis lawyer, why I've been invited to sit on boards and advise boards and uh, help make businesses successful. Awesome. I love that. And it's funny that what that made me think of is once upon a time when I worked at the bank and I, I was miserable, didn't really enjoy my job or time there. And some of my managers would say, you know, you really need to work on your attention to detail. And in my head, I would always think, it's not that I need to work on my attention to detail. I'm just not interested in the details that you want me to pay attention to. <laughs> but um, well, right, right. You're, well, exactly. <laughs> um, but you know, look, the details are important in life. The devil really is in the details. And, and by the same token, you can't get lost in the details. So the ability to master the details and manage them in a strategic way is um, not a common ability. Certainly not. And, you know, I hope that 30 years from now, I can, I can say, like you say, that I've found that balance. And of course, it will, it'll take some time. Um, Neil, I want to ask you, what advice do you have for, for investors who are either interested in cannabis or, or want to place capital, but are not so familiar with the industry? What, what advice or recommendations would you offer to those folks? Well, you know, people ask me all the time, what stocks should I buy? And, you know, that's, an almost impossible question, especially given how a lot of the stocks are fairly thinly traded, traded on, uh, you know, a lot, mostly on the Canadian markets. Um, and, you know, the sort of reduced level of transparency um, in the, the disclosures of a lot of those companies compared to what we typically expect to see in the U.S. Um, other people ask me, well, what segment of the industry should I invest in? If I was going to pick a segment, what should I go into? And, you know, that's difficult to answer, too, because, you know, some people believe that, that you know, ultimately it's all about cultivation. Other people believe that cultivation is a commodity, and uh, that's not where you want to be long term. Right now, I see cultivation companies making significant profits if they have a good niche. W will that last forever? I don't know. Um, you know, adding value in at the manufacturing level, I've always thought was a, a pretty solid place to be. Um, a lot of it depends on a state-by-state -state basis on the regulatory structure within that state. Um, if I was going to have one piece of advice for investors, it's that, I'm, as I mentioned earlier, I'm seeing more and more strong management teams running successful companies. And so I would say that those companies and those teams are out there, they're succeeding. And in the long run, I would suspect that those companies are going to have a higher likelihood of success um, down the road. And so 
that would seem to be, uh, you know, the most prudent place to invest your, your capital, mitigated, of course, by the demands of those people because they know their companies are worth um, I have a greater chance of success and are thus worth more. And they're, so they're commanding higher valuations. So, you know, ultimately it's all a risk and reward exercise. Um, I don't think I have a magic answer, but I think those are the primary considerations I, I would suggest be applied. Great. Uh, it reminds me of people ask me all the time, Mike, what's the next big thing in cannabis? And I'm like, you know, I don't know, everything, you know, <laughs> or nothing. I don't, who knows? Um, anyway, I want to shift gears, Neil, into a, a little bit of coaching. I know you only have a, a couple minutes left, but I'm curious, what is your biggest business challenge or roadblock today? Uh, I, I would say, I, you know, I have two of them. One is... Um, matching capacity to demand, which is always a challenge, uh, especially in a growing industry. And the second is, you know, competing with the mega law firms that are now starting to come into the industry um, and, uh, you know, trying to, uh, you know, get involved with the more successful companies. Got it. So, how are those two related? Everyone will, will generally tell you that they have plenty of capacity. Whatever you need, they'll take care of. And I think we, we, would, we would say the same thing. Um, whatever our clients need, we get done. We get it done by when they need to get it done. Uh, we get it done right. Uh, and uh, we never disappoint. You know, we never disappoint. So we do what it takes. If that takes working around the clock, it takes working around the clock. We do it. Um, you know, that is you know, that can become a challenge as uh, uh, staffing fluctuates. So, you know, I might add an associate, I might lose an associate. And as that fluctuates, uh, our capacity fluctuates. And, you know, um, while we always get it done, sometimes it's, it's, it's more difficult than other times. Got it. And how does, how does that relate to competing with the mega firms? If at all. Well, you know, we don't have 800 lawyers sitting around waiting to be given assignments, right? Um, so for clients that are not cost sensitive, who don't mind paying $1,200 an hour times five on every conference call, um, you know, it can be difficult to match that capacity. On the other hand, we're so experienced at this, we can do things um, a lot faster and more efficiently because we've been doing them for years. And for our clients that are cost sensitive, we do it in a more cost effective way because, um, you know, every day when I wake up in the morning, my goal is to try to find a way to good, get a good night's sleep that, that next night. Um, it's not to like, oh, you know, a lot of clients think, that lawyers wake up and what they want to do is you know, bill their clients as much as possible. And, you know, maybe there are lawyers out there that operate that way. I have a different approach. Like my approach aligns more with, I think, most of my clients' interests, which is I know I need to get their, their, satisfy their needs, get their work done, 
but I don't have the luxury of having five guys, you know, being on every call and, you know, just like churning hour after hour. We have too much to do. Like we have to operate efficiently. Um, if we're not efficient, we won't be able to get our work done and we won't get to go to sleep that night. So in, in most instances, I find that our interests are aligned with our clients in that we have to operate efficiently, which makes uh, our clients' experiences with us highly cost-effective. In other words, on a value per dollar basis, we are producing far more value than, you know, than the big firms that charge three times our rates are. That said, some people like the brand name and, and you know, it's always a, a little frustrating for us when we work with a client and we nurture them and we take them from an early stage to the point where they're successful. And then all of a sudden, oh, you know, they want to, they, you know, they want to bring in some major firm to do some piece of their work. We work with, we work with those firms all the time. We do deals with them all the time. We're co-counsel with them all the time. We do it. It's just sometimes a little frustrating. I hear that. I'm, I'm curious, what is the biggest obstacle uh, that can prevent you from operating efficiently? Not being provided the tools that we need. Um, you know, in an ideal world, uh, in this day and age, we get at, we, if we take on a client, we get access to a data room, we can digest where they are and then formulate a plan and execute on that plan as efficiently as humanly possible. Um, but sometimes we don't get all the information or we don't get it timely or we don't get it in a way that enables us to operate as efficiently as possible. Or we get the stop, start, stop, start routine. Um, and those are the kinds of things that inhibit our, our, uh, our, official, our efficiency. Uh, so it's a little bit of the client not being as efficient as as they can be, and very often they're away. right. Very often they're understaffed, and their management teams are scrambling, and they have to, you know, they have to really play triage, and they don't have the luxury of gathering up all the information all at once to make our efforts as efficient as possible. They do, you know, they do the best they can. So we, you know, we work with them as best we can as, and, and we, I think, perform as efficiently as they, as they enable us to. I see. I'm curious, how often is that the case where, you know, the management teams or executive teams are spread thin and, you know, scrambling to get everything in place so that you can help them? In the cannabis industry, almost always. Almost always. Interesting. I'm not surprised by that answer. Well, because, uh, because you have rapidly growing companies that start off with thin management teams that often don't have a lot of experience. A lot of them bring in experienced uh, executives and that can help tremendously um, and has helped tremendously with a number of our clients. Some of them never do. And they just try to get by super thin. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a challenge. Some of, the, some of them don't really understand the value of it. A lot of them are just looking to keep their overhead down. Uh, you know, there's a variety of motivations. And, uh, you know, all of those factors can contribute to, uh, um, you know, less than optimal efficiency. Um, and look, especially with uh, smaller growing companies, legal fees tend to be a disproportionately high expense. 
And that's exacerbated even further in a highly regulated and highly capital intensive industry like cannabis. So if, if, if as a cannabis operator, you, um, you fail to manage your legal resources as efficiently as possible, you know, it's very easy to end up with runaway expenses. Um, we try to help manage that as effectively as possible. We try to provide the benefit of our experience in doing so. And sometimes we're more successful than others, usually due to, you know, constraints that are beyond our control. So I'm curious, Neil, if there's maybe something that you haven't tried or done yet, you know, a way to combine your strategic thinking skills and your detail mastery to consistently help these cannabis executive teams or these, these companies that all seem to have this, this common issue. And I, yeah, so I'm just wondering if there's maybe like a system or process or referral or, or something that you could offer as a value add that will help these clients, you know, get a little more efficient or organized that'll not only be good for them, but also save you a couple of headaches as far as getting them onboarded or working with them. Well, we do that on a regular basis with our clients. You know, uh, I'm not bashful about providing strategic advice wherever it's welcomed. And it, it generally is. And so we try to help our clients, not just with their actual legal needs, but also on a, on a strategic level and, and give them the benefit of what we've seen and what we've experienced and try to help them manage their processes, um, you know, to maximize their chances of success. And if I could also sort of, uh, answer that same question from my own personal standpoint, as we were talking about earlier, one of the ways that I uh, deal with the issue of how to compete with the big firms is I'm affiliated with a big firm. So I have a relationship with Blank Rome and they're often able to provide, you know, uh, the resources if something comes up that's not in our wheelhouse or, or not, um, uh, not within our area of expertise um, or out of our jurisdictional reach. Um, you know, we've got 650 lawyers available to us around the country, um, uh, you know, with a close relationship uh, that, so that we're, we're able to provide that stepping stone if a client needs it. We also have a relationship with a compliance consulting firm. So whereas, you know, we're lawyers, um, we don't necessarily master the the intricate details of every single state and every single locality's cannabis regulations, but we but we have a relationship with a compliance consulting firm that can work in all jurisdictions. You know, they're not lawyers, but they can fill out the forms and provide the support that clients need for the license application and renewal processes um, on a much more cost-effective basis than you can get from any lawyer. So we've sort of extended our network to address our competitive needs and the, and the business and legal needs of our clients. Um, and that's part of how we help our clients address their needs. Cool. Awesome. Well, Neil, I know you have another meeting coming up. So before I let you jump, I want to ask you, what was your biggest insight or most interesting thing that came up for you during this conversation today? Clearly your beard. 
<laughs> I, I appreciate that, but I, I won't settle for that. I, I, I surely there's got to be something, something better. Well, as I was thinking in the coaching session about, you know, some of your questions, I, I sort of realized, uh, by the way, this is King's Garden, you know, fourth largest cannabis company in California, one of our great clients. Um, for all my other clients, if you want your swag being shown on video, you got to send me some. Um, <laughs> uh, and, uh, but but uh, I think realizing how I've addressed um, the competitive landscape and provided um, uh, you know, a range of solutions for companies in the industry uh, that uh, can help them uh, solve their problems uh, cost effectively and efficiently. Um, and we're, we're in a position to help them do that. I think that kind of dawned on me that maybe I had thought that through reasonably well strategically and have a pretty good set of solutions. Nice. So it occurred to you that you know, what you thought might be a problem was actually something that you would- It's working fine, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Hey, it's good to get that reminder sometimes. And so I'm glad if that's what you're walking away with, I'm happy to hear that. So, so thanks for your input. My, my pleasure. Thank you, Neil. Thanks for taking the time here today. And, you know, I have to make the shameless plug, which is you know, if, if any of your clients, you feel like they're in need of an executive coach or, or someone to help them sort out the, the, the mess that might be happening between, between the ears or, or just the mental health stuff, you know, feel free to send some folks my way. But uh, until then, I want to thank you again for, for taking the time to chat with me. It's always full of insights for me. And I love hearing some of the stories from you. So Neil, thanks so much, and I look forward to seeing you soon. You're welcome. My pleasure, Mike. See you soon. Hi, Mike Z is. Hi, Mike Z is. Hi, Mike Z is. The Cannabis Business Coach. Hi, Mike Z is. Hi, Mike Z is. Hi, Mike Z is. The Cannabis Business Coach.